So, so yesterday we were talking about the two faces and the two paths. And, and we saw that within those two boys there were two very distinct destinies. And we also noted that Esau was the fire that refined Jacob. And we concluded that we all need Esau's in our lives to refine and to transform and to convert us to Israel. That's what we considered yesterday. Now this morning, we're going to now move into chapter 27. And we're about to embark on this new journey with Jacob. Isaac's eyes are now dimming. And Jacob is about to make a, a bold move. He's about to seize the blessing. And, and brothers and sisters, we need to brace ourselves for what is about to unfold here. And as we go through these thoughts this morning, I'd, I'd like us all just to ponder one question, if, if I may ask you to do this. And the question is, do we act as if God is in control of our lives? So that's the question I want to, to, to begin with. Do we act as if God is in control in our lives? So here then in chapter 27, Isaac looks at his favored son Esau, and he says there at the end of verse 3, Take your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and make me venison. And, and, and you can imagine, do for me what I love most is the, is the idea there. Hunt game for me is the New King James Version. Now, you know, just keep a, a finger there because I want us just to notice all these things. Go back to chapter 25 and verse 28 because I'd like you just to put all this in your margin because you know that Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. And so here then, for one last time, you can kind of, you can kind of imagine Isaac saying, as his eyes going dim, as he anticipates death, do it for me, son. Do it for me. One last time, go and bring in that venison. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that as we work through this chapter, this is the chapter of the blessing. It is a a chapter of the covenant. So why then is Isaac asking Esau to get venison, game meat, a deer? That there's no record anywhere in Scripture that this was a, a sacrificial meat. Go out, be the hunter, were the words of Isaac to Esau. But not only is it a strange meat, but also notice there's no mention of God. This is indeed going to be a blessing, a covenant is going to be bestowed upon one of the sons. Yet Yahweh, his name, is absent from all these things. Now, another thing just to note, uh, for those of you making notes, is just put in your margin Leviticus 17, verses 13 to 14. And, and the reason why I ask you to put that is because it is there in Leviticus that it stipulates what you had to do for gain. There was a, a particular routine that you had to embark upon if you were to go out into the forest and, and kill a wild animal. And under strict instruction under the law, what you would have to do, you'd bring back the animal and you'd have to pour the blood of that animal upon the altar. Again, this is absent, which is rather unusual. So I think then, as we look down this chapter, it's a very difficult chapter to embark. 
And it's certainly a difficult one to, to comprehend. What is Isaac thinking in all of this? Making a covenant with a deer. Now, now we mentioned yesterday that uh, there is this amazing foresight and insight and, and uh, know-how with women. And, and Rebecca seems to know everything that's going on. And she seems to do everything that's right. Just, just pick out the, a few little phrases here. In verse 9, she tells Jacob, Go to the flock and go and get yourself the goat. And the goat was a sacrificial meat. Then notice in verse 15, she already has Esau's goodly raiment. Notice, she's got Esau's coat in her house, in her tent. And that is not a, a normal phrase, that goodly raiment. In fact, that is the special priestly garment. It's the exact phrase that's used in Exodus chapter 28, verse 4, concerning the high priest garment. And we talked about yesterday about the, the responsibilities of the firstborn. And right at the top there is that the firstborn had the responsibility of being the priest within the family. And, and, and no one was wearing this garment because, because Esau had forsook it. And so she places the priestly garment, the head of the home, upon Jacob. And I want you just to notice this. I've got these words underlined. You can see the driving force of Rebecca. Remember, she had received that promise yesterday that the elder shall serve the younger. And look at that little phrase there. It's so telling, isn't it? Verse 8 there, obey my voice. Verse 13, obey my voice. Verse 43, obey my voice. She's behind everything here. So she covers Jacob's hands with goatskin. He takes on the priestly garment. And he takes into his father the savory meat. And notice, and we're going to come back to this. This is incredibly telling. He lies, he plays along with this deceit, and he lies twice. Verse 18. And he came unto his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I. And there Isaac says, Who art thou, my son? And Jacob said unto his father, I am Esau. Underline those words, please. They're going to be incredibly powerful later this week. I'm Esau, thy firstborn. I have done according as thou badest me. Arise and pray thee, sit and eat of my venison, that thy soul may bless thee. And again, verse 24. And he said, art thou my very son? And for the second time, almost underlining in scripture, he lies, he deceives his father twice. Yes, I am. And isn't it interesting that the, the deceiver will be deceived because many years later, under the blood of the, 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 the kid of the goat, when, when the brothers came in to an old age Jacob and they said, your favored son, he's died, he's been murdered. And they showed him the blood of the kid of a goat. And so then the lesson just rings out loud and clear, the deceiver will be deceived. Something that we should all bear and think about. So Jacob was afraid. And I want you just to notice verse 22. He's so afraid that wise Isaac here immediately detects his voice. And he says there in verse 22, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. So he detects the voice, but when he touched the hands, the hands of the skin of the goats. They were Esau's. And, and, and think in all of this, the, the context, as we, we dramatized yesterday, how wicked Esau was. The mother had received this prophecy. She felt compelled. And, and here Jacob, as a, as a willing son, goes forward. 
and involves himself in this deceit. But you can understand because this was a moment in time. The consequences didn't bear thinking that Esau was about to take the birthright. He was about to become a member of the line of the Lord Jesus Christ, the line of Messiah. And so here then Rebecca takes these things into her own hands. And I wonder, as we just reflect upon this, do we, do we push God's time in our own lives? No doubt we all pray. But how often do we wait for God to reveal himself to us? It's a thing we, all challenge, we are all challenged with, isn't it? Human haste over divine timing. And this is the thing with Jacob. His motives were absolutely right, but it wasn't in accordance with God's will at this moment. And that's going to be revealed later on in the week. But it's something that we should all reflect upon. It's not in our time, but it's in God's. Now, what's quite fascinating in all of this is that, yes, Isaac detected the voice, but there was something else that almost gave it away, and it was his words. And the question here in verse 20, why is it? Why is it, Jacob? As he speaks to Esau, why is it that it's taking you so little time to prepare this meal for me? And, and notice the, the words that Jacob disguises equal, Esau says, because the Lord, Yahweh thy God, hath brought it to me. Nowhere in scripture do you find Esau using the covenant name of God. And Isaac would have known. And suddenly, suspicion is high. And right away, he says, you come near to me so that I can feel you. Can you see that? Suddenly, a, a characteristic has been revealed of this man. The profane person, the, the fornicator. And Isaac wasn't being fooled. This was not a name that his son used. He didn't use the covenant name of God. Suspicion is high. And so now convinced, and we're going to look at this a little later in the week, but let's just read it now. Now convinced, after he feels him and touches the raiment and smells him, that this was indeed Esau. The disguise was amazing. That Jacob disguises Esau receives the blessing. Therefore, God, verse 28, give thee of the dew of heaven, honor the fatness of the earth, and plenty of corn and wine. Let people serve thee, and nations bow down to thee. Be Lord over thy brethren, and let thy mother's sons bow down to thee. Cursed be everyone that curseth thee, and blessed be he that blesses thee. So the question I want you just to think about here, and I'm not going to give you an answer today, was Isaac holding back? Was he in two minds? Was that name of Yahweh a true revealer? Something just to ponder and to reflect upon. But when you look at that blessing, as you can see on the screen, if you were going to summarize that blessing on the left-hand side, what would you say? I would, I would summarize it as this. Political power, 
and agricultural prosperity. Just, just look at that blessing on the left-hand side. I want you to just to, to really think about this. We know that an Abrahamic promise is a, a promise that is going to make him a great nation, that's going to bless his name, bless his seed forever. So right at the core of the Abrahamic promise that begins in Genesis 12 is the promise of a land and a people. And a land and a people is associated with the name of Israel. And I ask you, look at the screen. Is there any mention, any mention of a land and a people? The, the only thing that comes out is that which is highlighted in blue, this, this cursing. That anyone who comes against you, I will curse them. I will curse them that curse thee. It is the curse aspect that is brought out here. But there is nothing here that is Abrahamic, which is fascinating, I feel. Well, let's move on. Shortly after, both Esau and Isaac recognize that they've been deceived. Jacob goes with the blessing, the blessing that he wanted. Esau comes in with the venison, and suddenly Isaac realized what's happened. Verse 33, and Isaac trembled very exceedingly and said, Who, where is he that hath taken venison and brought it me, and have given it of all before thou camest, and have blessed him, yea, and he shall be blessed. Right? And Isaac trembled. Exceeding that. I want you sir, to notice that. This is a, a very big reaction to the news that he'd given the blessing to the wrong son. That, that word trembled there is uncontrollable violently. He was that the picture is, is so dramatic, he's he's shaking from, from head to toe. He's uncontrollable. There's no stopping Isaac. Something is deeply worrying this man. And, and similarly, you can see here that there's a reaction of Esau. And I wonder, in this reaction of Isaac, is he trembling because he feels that he's given the wrong blessing? A question for you to think about today. We're not going to disclose the answer. Does he feel that God has found him out? That he shouldn't have even had thoughts about blessing Esau with, with such a wicked son? It was so obvious. It was plainly obvious. Why bless this son? And as God found him out, and so he shook from head to toe. Something to reflect upon, the, the faithfulness and the character of Isaac. Well, what is certainly clear is that Esau was so deeply upset. Verse 34, and when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with a great and exceedingly bitter cry and said unto his father, bless me, even me also, my father. So just look at these words here. That the Esau, he cried with great and exceeding bitter cry. And, and the idea here is that he, he bailed, he, he kind of wailed. It was loud, it was bitter, it was violent. And there they are. Can you imagine? There's Isaac and he's shaking from top to, 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 head, from head to toe. And there is, is Esau and he's crying, he's bewailing the situation that he finds himself in. And, and notice the appeal, bless me, the, the notice there, me, bless me. Even me also, my father. Well, well, the blessing is interesting, isn't it? As we've already pointed out, because at the end of verse 28, it's about the, the fatness of the earth and plenty of corn and wine. 
And that was about the immediate. And we've already seen that, that Esau was a man that cared about the immediate. And he'd already forfeited, hadn't he, the birthright by, by giving Jacob the birthright. So, so this fatness of the earth and the plenty of corn and wine was very important for Esau. He needed this. He'd given his birthright away to Jacob. Can you see that? This would hurt. And somehow Jacob had hoovered everything up in one moment. And he cries bitterly. Well, as I said, it's, it's very difficult, isn't it, to, to decipher what's going on. And so we need the divine commentary elsewhere. Shall we have a look at Hebrews? Hebrews chapter 12. And we have this wonderful commentary of this moment. So it's worth just, again, penciling that into your margin. And, and what is highlighted here in Hebrews chapter 12 is the faithfulness of Isaac. And I want to really emphasize that this morning because with this dimness of the eyes, we could have that as a metaphor of a, a spiritual, weak, old man. But he doesn't appear in Scripture as that at all. So look what he said here in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 17. For ye know not how afterward... Well, look at verse 16. You can see that the context there. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Okay, so we saw that yesterday. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, so that's this morning, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Now, I just want you to look down at your Bibles, because this is interesting. Um, the King James Version needs a little help here. So that phrase, how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, that's speaking about Esau. Have a look in your margin, please. And you should have something like, even afterward, desired to inherit the blessing. So in other words, then, when the blessing had been committed to Jacob, there is Esau, and he's, he's bewailing, he's crying violently, and he's insisting upon his father, bless me, I want you to renege upon the blessing of Jacob. He took it under false pretense, and I want you now to bless me. Okay? And also, I want you to notice how Esau pleaded with Isaac to change his mind, and that the King James Version has no place of repentance. Can you see that? No place of repentance, which is not clear what is meant there. Have a look in your margin, and it says there, no way to change Isaac's mind. Now, that's very helpful. Because what we see now is that here is Esau, and he's crying, and he's crying, and he's saying, bless me, bless me. And in this, he's insisting on Isaac to change his mind. And this, this, this spiritual commentary says that Isaac's decision was final. He was not prepared to change his mind. He was, he was standing in front of the son that he loved with all his heart. And he would not change his mind. And I call this the four B's. He was the, the big, blubbering, bearded baby. And there he is, and he's crying and crying and crying in front of his father. But Isaac is not prepared to change his mind. There's something fascinating that's being revealed in the account here. If you just take stock from the book of Genesis, where do you find in the book of Genesis real emotion? Just think, it's full of emotional facts and wonderful narratives. But I'm talking about dialogue and conversation. 
So the classic one, Genesis chapter 22, when, when Abraham took Isaac up Mount Moriah, think about the conversation. Do you get any sense from the commentary how Abraham's feeling? Do, do you get any sense of how Isaac is feeling? No, we have, to, we have to superimpose the feelings that we believe are being felt by those two men. Yet why is it that suddenly, here in this account, that the scriptures just open up and there's a well of emotion? Suddenly, the scriptures are drawing us into this, this immersive dialogue between Esau and Isaac. And, and there's a sense for the reader to, to empathize with the situation that, that Esau has been robbed, unfairly so. Can you see that? And it takes the Hebrews commentary here to say that what took place that day was right. And it was right that Isaac was not prepared to change his mind. Let me just emphasize that. Come back a chapter to Hebrews chapter 11. So, as I said, in Genesis, there's, there's some very fraught episodes, very little dialogue. Here, there is so much. And, and look here at Hebrews 11 and verse 20. And before you look at it, I want you to answer a question. Before you glance down, we all love the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Ask yourselves a question before you look down. How does Isaac appear in Hebrews 11? Don't look down, keep your chins up. How does Isaac appear in Hebrews 11? Right. Just answer that for yourselves. Now let's find the answer. Let's have a look at verse 20. Now you would think, well, he was prepared to go up with his father up Mount Moriah and to be sacrificed. But it says there in verse 20 of Hebrews 11, by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. So this is what we're looking at today. So the day in which Isaac blessed his boys was not a day when he was blind and spiritually weak. It's the day that he gets into Hebrews 11. Now suddenly we're looking at this account very differently. This is now at the height of Isaac's spirituality. There's something he does today, this morning, that it takes more out of him than being a willing sacrifice of Genesis 22, which is the faith of Abraham in Hebrews 11, not the faith of Isaac. This is his moment. What a moment it is, brothers and sisters, when we look at it. Yet so many of us look at this and think, oh, Isaac, his eyes were dim. He lost the plot. He dropped the ball. Not at all, brothers and sisters. Now, what's fascinating also about this, notice what the blessing is. What is the blessing? Well, it's certainly not the blessing that he's just given Jacob. Because it says there, blessing of things to come. What had he just blessed Jacob with? He had blessed Jacob with the here and now. Isaac is not yet in Hebrews 11 as we're working through the account. Something is about to happen. And if you've got the revised version, you might have a more modern translation. It says, Isaac blessed Jacob and even Esau. And that's the idea in the Greek, that he blesses Jacob and that took tremendous faith. And it took even more faith to bless Esau. And we're going to see how he blesses Esau in a moment. It took something more out of Isaac to bless Esau. So let's just see what's going on. Right then, let's have a look at Genesis chapter 27 now. Genesis chapter 27. 
And he does bless Esau. He's blessed Jacob with this political prosperity and, and this wonderful agricultural um, abundance. But now he blesses Esau. Now, now remember, we're trying to understand the blessing of things to come. How does Isaac appear in Hebrews chapter 11? But we're going to see now. So this is it. Genesis 27 and verse 39. So there was Esau insisting that his father blesses him. So his father looks to him and says, Isaac his father answered and said, Behold, thy dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. And by thy sword shalt thou live and shalt serve thy brother. And it shall come to pass when thou art have when thou shalt have dominion, that thou shalt break his yoke from off thy neck. So just notice there, verse 29, that the beginning of the blessing, behold thy dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven. Now that gives us a problem right away, because if you go back to verse 28, and the blessing that Jacob received under the guise of Esau, it's virtually word for word, isn't it? Verse 28, therefore God give thee of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and the plenty of corn and wine. So, so in other words then, Isaac could not give this blessing to Esau because that blessing had already been given and taken. That was not a blessing for Isaac to give. I've got uh, the revised version here, and the margin is very helpful. And I want you just to, to notice this because, in fact, it appears in the RV margin the opposite to what you read in the King James Version. So, so here then, behold thy dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth. It should be, behold thy dwelling shall be away from the fatness of the earth. If you've not got that in your margin, please put that in your Bibles, because suddenly it makes sense, doesn't it? The blessing shall be away from the fatness of the earth and away from the dew of heaven. That The fatness of the earth, that the choicest part of the earth was the land of Israel. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. And that had been given now to Jacob. And, and it's interesting, isn't it, a phrase, the Jew of heaven, I've got on the margin here, you, you know that that's a, a metaphor of God's blessings. That's spelled out in, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 2. And so in other words then, the land and God's spiritual blessings that come from God's word is coming upon Jacob and his descendants, and you could not be further away from that. You will not be in the land, and you will not receive his word. Can you see that? Suddenly, this blessing becomes a curse. He's going he's to move away from the choicest land, and he's going to be in a, a red desert. He's going to dwell in the, the land of Edom, at Mount Seir. Can you see that? Suddenly, everything is turned on his head. And it took tremendous faith for Isaac to do this, there he is, his son, his favorite son. He says, give me, give me a blessing. And this father who loves his son, he says, you know, I curse you. And God noted that and said, Esau. Esau rightly received the curse. And Isaac, what a moment of faith. And because of that, even Esau, Isaac gets into Hebrews 11. It's an amazing thing that Isaac does here. And it shouldn't be something that we just quickly read over. 
Well, we've, we've only seen half of that verse of Hebrews 11. Let's go on now and let's see how he blesses Jacob. And you can see right away on the screen that there's, there's lots of orange here. He's getting the Abrahamic promise. Uh, but there's a few little details that we should note. Verse 3 then, having cursed Esau, having cursed Esau, he now blesses Jacob and he says, And God Almighty bless thee and make thee fruitful and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people. I want you to notice that. I'm going to say what this is all about in a moment. And give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee and to thy seed with thee, that thou may inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham. Now, we read those words, and we, we know in our hearts, that's Abrahamic. There's a land, there's a people, there's a sea, there's a promise. It's all there. And it all is. Suddenly, all the promises are kind of ushered into, ushered into Jacob. Well, there's a title here I want us to note. It's a very important title, God Almighty. See that at the beginning of verse 3? And that is a title of God, a very specific title, and it is the title of El Shaddai. So it's worth noting that it is El Shaddai. But before we look further at that, there's another little detail here that I want you to notice. In verse 4, it says to Jacob, so here's Isaac, and remember, now in these words that he expresses, he's going to get into Hebrews 11, so these verses 3 and 4 are incredibly important. These are the most important Isaac words that Isaac ever says. And he says there in verse 4, notice that a multitude would come from him. Can you see that? Well, the end of verse 3, that thou mayest be a multitude of people. Can you all see that? A multitude of people. That's a very important phrase. That word multitude there, it's the first time that that appears in Scripture, and it is the word congregation. It is the Hebrew word of the Greek word ecclesia. What a blessing. Jacob. Not only will you be of the seed, but you will establish God's family. The ecclesia of God. The living house. What remarkable words. If there was ever a phrase that Jacob needed in his life, after he just deceived his father, this was it. He was like Peter, the founding stone of the ecclesia of God. That's how important Jacob is, brothers and sisters. The founding stone. Now I want us to think about this title, El Shaddai, because El Shaddai has a particular story and association with the patriarchs. It's El Shaddai who's going to give Jacob this family, the ecclesia. But El Shaddai has a character, he has a purpose, he has a narrative. So I want you to go to Genesis chapter 17, and this is the first time we come across this title of God, El Shaddai. Now the first thing I want you to notice, verse 5 tells us that when God reveals himself to Abraham as El Shaddai, the almighty God at the end of verse 1, look at verse 5. What does El Shaddai do? El Shaddai changes Abraham's name to Abraham. He goes from the exalted father to a father of a multitude. In other words, 
El Shaddai is the God that transforms lives. El Shaddai is the one who changed Abraham, the founder of the faithful. He takes his name from exalted father to a father of a multitude. See that? And El Shaddai now introduces himself to Jacob and he says, right then, Jacob, we are now on a journey. And this journey is a, na- is a, is a journey of transformation. It's a journey that's going to see the change of your name. So just as Abraham's name was changed, now Jacob's name is going to be changed. And it's going to be changed through this God, El Shaddai. And, and it's Abraham's name that the father of a multitude that's loaded, isn't it? It's loaded with a promise. And, and Israel is going to be loaded with a promise. And this is the role that El Shaddai is going to take. Well, just, to, just think about this title of El Shaddai. It's an interesting title if you've not looked at it before. El is the name of God there, El, but a particular manifestation of God, it speaks of mighty or strength. So this God that's going to work a change in Jacob, that's already worked a change in Abraham, is a strong God, will bring power, bear power upon this man. And Shaddai also is a a very interesting name because Shaddai can be seen in two ways. Shadad, which means destroyer, and Shad, which means nourisher. So it's almost like two sides of a coin, a double-edged sword. Think about those words the Apostle Paul, the goodness and the severity of God. This is the idea. What Paul's talking about here, it's the El Shaddiah. So, so this is a very powerful thing. So when God introduces himself to to Abraham as El Shaddai, and he's now revealing himself to Jacob as El Shaddai. He's saying this. He's saying, Jacob, I am a a nourisher. I am a nourisher of God's people. And I am a destroyer of my enemies. Can you see that? This now is the God that's going to work in Jacob's life and bring about this change. You know, brothers and sisters, isn't this wonderful? Because we're all on this journey, aren't we? We're all embarking upon Jacob journeys. We're all trying to be Israel, God's people and God's land forevermore. And, and, and this is the point. It is the El Shaddai that's working in our lives. Of course, we all know about our father, Yahweh, the God of Israel. But he reveals himself in our lives as the El Shaddai, the powerful God that is a destroyer and a nourisher. In other words, Jacob is knowing that in his life he's going to have peaks, And he's going to have valleys. He's going to have famines. He's going to have feasts. Because there's going to be a moment in his life where God is revealing himself as a nourisher. And other times as a destroyer. And brothers and sisters, if we think in our chairs and and we reflect upon our own lives, isn't that the way that God has revealed himself to us? We've all had peaks and troughs, of course. And some of them have been utterly devastating. We've all had famines and endured them. But we've all enjoyed the feasts. And it's because we're on this journey of transformation. And it is the El Shaddai. The El Shaddai that worked with Abraham. The El Shaddai worked with Jacob. And all his seed, the multitude, the ecclesia of God. Can you see that? This is our story. This is our journey. And we've got to believe it in trust. Now, Now, think for a moment. When... Esau stood face to face with his father. 
And I want you for a moment to think about the enormity of the decision that Isaac makes when he curses Esau and he blesses Jacob. He can see that one son is tearful and because of the decision that he makes, that the other son is going to become a target. Esau was a mighty hunter. Can you see that? He has to place all his trust in God in making that decision. He denies his favorite and he puts at risk his other son. Can you see that? But he's compelled. And because he made this decision in faith, he appears in Hebrews 11. It's an amazing decision that he makes. Utterly, utterly marvelous. And brothers and sisters, the exhortation for ourselves is that we know from ecclesial life and hard, and, and, and hard family life that there will be times, and often they're frequent, that we will be faced with hard decisions. And the hardest decisions are, are when we have to make decisions in real family life. And, and brothers and sisters, and this is just God's word, this is not me saying it, this is God's word, true love is not a peacemaker. True love is not a peacemaker. If we love our brothers and sisters and we love our family, it is not a peacemaker. It is standing firm in our beliefs. Just think about Isaac. And as he makes this decision, he is rocking. But he makes it all the same. And because of it, God says, you're in Hebrews 11. I've imputed righteousness unto you. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. The height of Isaac's life. Now, Jacob now flees. He now knows he's, knows, knows he's, he now knows he's a hunted man. And he leaves Beersheba. He goes 40 miles up north. And he comes to Luz. Let's have a look at Genesis chapter 35. And I want you to imagine there. There he is in open country. And he looks up and there's a blanket of stars. And as he lies there, no doubt in my mind, he thinks about the promises that were, were given to Abraham. There in Genesis chapter 15, that his seed would be as the stars of heaven. And there was a blanket of of, of shining and, and, and shining and glimmering stars as, as he lay there about to fall to sleep. But I want you to note here the frame of mind that Jacob was in when he fled Beersheba and goes to Laban's house. And, and, and it's found here in verse 1. And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there, and make thee an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau. I, I have already mentioned that this idea of the face is found throughout the life of Jacob. And here he is. He's stolen the face of Esau. And, and in the mind of Esau is the mind of Jacob is the face of Esau. So I want you to think about that just for a moment. There he is. And he's going to go to Bethel. And he's thinking about the face of his big brother. His terrible twin. Come back to chapter 28 then, because we had to go there to Genesis 35. It's actually 30 years later where God tells Jacob to go to Bethel again and reminds him how he felt when he went to Bethel the first time. But let's now go on the journey when he leaves his father's house and he makes his way to Laban. So he stops at this place and it's going to be Bethel. 
And I want you just to notice how this is introduced to us here. It's a very special place. And notice, first of all, that when he comes here, something surprising happens. That's the first thing I want you to notice. And the phrase is kind of camouflaged a little. It's there and behold. So just notice verse 12. First of all, I've got these words underlined. Verse 12 says, and behold. Then near the end of verse 12, and behold. Hope you've got that. Then verse 13, right at the beginning of verse 13, you've got and behold. And at the beginning of verse 15, you've got and behold. And the reason why I emphasize that, they are expressions of astonishment. So Jacob makes his way to Bethel. And we're going to see in a moment, that's a place of incredible significance. But what happens to Jacob here took him by surprise. He was not expecting a particular encounter. And the reason being, he goes to Bethel with the face of Esau on his mind. And something quite astonishing happens here. So astonishing that we can see what the problem is, because in verse 16, at the end of it, Jacob concludes there, at the end of verse 16, surely the Lord, Yahweh, is in this place, and I knew it not. That's it. So he's surprised. Four times we come across, behold, 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 behold. They're all expressions of surprise. And the reason being, the reason why he's surprised is that he did not expect Yahweh to be there. I want you to, to really note that because that helps us to, to, to kind of explain and understand what's going on here. He didn't expect Yahweh to be there. Now, that is a difficult one to understand because Jacob knew his Bible. We've seen that he was in a tent with his father and grandfather. He, he, he was on the scene until 15, until Abraham passed off the scene. He knew his scriptures inside out. He knew the significance of Bethel. So why was he not expecting Yahweh to be there? I ask you. The, the other thing I want you to notice, and this tells us that Jacob knew exactly where he was, there's another phrase that's repeat, re, repeated, and um, you see it there. I've got it underlined. The beginning of verse 11, and a certain place. I want you to notice that, and a certain place. A certain place there. And then if you look near the end of the verse, you've got that place. And then right at the end of the verse, you've got that place again, haven't you? Notice all that? And then if you go down to verse 16, near the end of that, you've got this place. The second line of verse 17, you've got this place. And then verse 19, you've got that place. So the, that idea, the place, that place, this place, is, is, is used repeatedly throughout these verses. So there's something very special about this place. And it's a definitive place because look at verse 11. The first time that phrase is used, a certain place, look in your margin. You may have the words, or you should have. If you've not, please put them in the place. It's definitive. So Jacob knows exactly what he's doing. He, he goes to Bethel, the place. Something incredible happens here. But it took him by surprise. How can you go to a place that you know is the place? And it takes you by surprise. Because he didn't expect God to be there for him. That's the point. He'd done something so bad. He didn't expect God there to be there for him. He was there for Abraham. We're going to see in a moment. But he didn't expect it for him. Let's have a look at this. Now let's fill in the gaps. Come back to Genesis chapter 12. This is amazing. 
Genesis chapter 12. And this is the first time we come across Bethel. And did you know Bethel is the place where Abraham erects his first altar? The very first step he takes place in the land. He sets an, an altar up in Bethel. This is the significance of this place. And, and Jacob certainly knew it. But he didn't think Yahweh resided there anymore. Verse 6 then of Genesis chapter 12. And Abraham passed through the land unto, oh, notice, the place. The place of Shechem, unto the plain of Morah. And the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded an altar. That's the first altar of Abraham. And the Lord who appeared unto him. Go to chapter 13 now. We've got a commentary on chapter 12. And Abraham went on his journey from the south, even to Bethel. Bethel. That's where we are. Bethel. Even unto the place. Bethel is the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, unto the place of the altar. So the place then, the, the kind of the cross that marked the spot, as it were, is the place of the altar. The altar was the place of Bethel which he made there at the first. And there Abraham called on the name of Yahweh. So Bethel is the place of the first altar. It's the first one that Abraham made. God appeared in vision to Abraham. Think about all these things that take place in Bethel. But something unique happens at Bethel. And I believe this is why it's called the place. I don't believe it's called the place because it's the first altar. I believe it's this little phrase there, and it's, it's mentioned twice for emphasis. There at the end of verse 4, that it was here at Bethel at the place that he called on the name of Yahweh. And, and notice there at the end of verse 8 of chapter 12, that he called upon the name of Yahweh. Now that's fascinating. And I believe this is the reason why it's called the place. Another phrase of that is that he invoked in the name of Yahweh. He appealed through the name of Yahweh. Now, I know this is hard to decipher. It's going to become very clear. He invoked or he appealed through the name of Yahweh. Now, you could appeal to Yahweh. But he appealed to Yahweh through the name of Yahweh. And the name of Yahweh is he who will be. And who was the one who was going to be? The Lord Jesus Christ. His entire purpose is going to be revealed through his son in which the promises are made manifest. So amazing. Abraham appealed to Yahweh through a name that would be. I believe, brothers and sisters, the words of John 8, verse 56, that tells us when Jesus says, Abraham, rejoice to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Remember those words? I believe it's here. At this moment, at Bethel, that Abraham foresaw the Redeemer to come. He'd received the promise. He'd established the altar. The covenant was here. This was the land. And suddenly everything made sense. And he called upon the name of Yahweh through the name to come. Isn't that wonderful? And so it's at Bethel, at this altar, and he erects this altar. It's at Bethel 
that Abraham saw the coming Messiah. I believe that. So fervently. And it all makes sense now. You come back now to Genesis chapter 28. We needed to kind of establish that background. And so then, similarly, here, what does Jacob do? Well, he's going to make an altar. But before he makes this altar, what does he do there? You notice that at the end of verse 11, he takes a stone and he makes it a pillar. He's at the spot. What were the stones? Well, it was the altar stone of Abraham's altar in Genesis chapter 12. The very spot that Abraham foresaw the Redeemer. This is, this is so dramatic, brothers and sisters. And he picks up the stone and he places it as a pillar. And he lies on the land that's been promised him through his father. And as he looks at the stars, and he's looking at those stars, and he feels that these stars are going to be his one day because he's going to inherit the Abraham. Can you imagine? Get in the, in the shoes of this man. I couldn't fall asleep. Somehow he falls asleep. He was tired. He covered 40 miles. And he falls asleep. And he has this incredible vision. Let's look at this. Verse 12. And he dreamed. And behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached the heaven. Behold, the angels of God ascending and descending upon it. The message of this ladder is this. Verse 15, and behold, I am with thee. I want you to remember this. this, this the, the purpose of this vision was to, to land this message with Jacob, and behold, I am with thee. And halfway down, verse 15, for I will not leave thee. Before we get into the ladder, think about that. I'm with you. I'm not going to leave you. The angels began with Jacob, as we know, and they went up the ladder and they came down the ladder. Think about, if I were to ask you, what's the best definition of an angel? You would say, I, I think it's Hebrews 1 verse 40. And it said, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister unto those that shall become heirs of salvation? Remember that? The best definition of an angel, I believe, if you think about that, are they not ministering spirits sent forth to minister unto those that shall be heirs? Don't you think those words penned by the great apostle is being drawn from Genesis chapter 28? He was the heir of salvation, wasn't he? He was the one in which the whole nation would be established. And here these angels ascending and descending upon him and this altar stone. Quite marvelous. But let's just look at the detail here. We, we've got verse 12, and he dreamed, and behold, a, a ladder. And, and the Hebrew there, it's a unique Hebrew word. You may have in your margin, it is a, a staircase. I believe it was a staircase. But the, the idea in the Hebrew was that it was a moving thing. Right? It wasn't something that was static. It was something that was moving and, and getting higher and higher. There was a a dynamic aspect to this is the idea, if you look at the root words. But nevertheless, I think it was a, it was a staircase. And that makes much greater sense, doesn't it? That rather than just going up a ladder, uh, as like someone who was cleaning someone's windows, I know it's a poor analogy, but this was a staircase of angels ascending and descending. 
upon the earth. The other thing I want you to notice, and behold, the Lord stood above it. I want you just to note those words, and behold, the Lord stood, stood above it. If you've got a margin, by the words above it, you may have beside it. And I find this helpful. Just keep your finger there and come back to Genesis chapter 18. So I want to show you how this Hebrew phrase is used elsewhere. Now, now this is the account of, uh, of Abraham. And um, when he was greeted by angels, unaware. And I just want to highlight a little phrase that's used here. Genesis 18 and, and verse 2. It says there, and, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. That's the very same phrase. So the, the AV translators have the Lord above the ladder, or the staircase. But here, elsewhere, the phrase is stood by him. And Abraham looked up, and suddenly these, these angels are right next to him. They're, they're in the tent, in close proximity. And so when you come back to the account that we're just looking at here in Genesis chapter 28. This is what I, I believe is being drawn. I believe Yahweh here, of course Yahweh is in heaven, but I believe here for the purpose of this vision of the staircase to demonstrate that God is with him, Yahweh is on the earth right next to him. Now of course Yahweh cannot look upon flesh and flesh cannot live. And so we've got a a name-bearing angel. And I want us to think about that for a moment. Who could this great name-bearing angel be? Surely in my mind, it is Michael. In Daniel 12, verse 2, it tells you, Michael, the great prince that standeth for my children. For the people of my children. Right? And, and, and here in Daniel chapter 12, it tells us that the, the purpose of, of of Michael, the great archangel, was to, to orchestrate and to, to be the guardian angel of the nation of Israel. And if, if Michael had been given that responsibility, where would that responsibility begin with? Surely it's with Jacob, whose name is going to become Israel. This is where the journey began. Surely that is the guardian angel there. So I want you to imagine then, just, just very quickly, I want you to imagine this guardian angel, Michael, he's standing right next to him, and, and there's Jacob, and he's, he's lying on the, on, on the earth, a land that was his, his, his head is resting upon the, 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 the stone, and angels are ascending and descending. Can you, can you picture that in your minds? And God has said to him, I am with you, yet he had fled from the face of Esau. And what a, a powerful picture this is, because there was Jacob holding on to his terrible twin's heel. And now suddenly he has another twin, another brother, as it were, who's embracing him. Can you see that? There, 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 there's, there's Jacob, and he's holding on to Esau's heel. And now he's in the warm embrace of a divine guardian. He's got nothing to fear. The tables are now turned. He's got now someone right next to him. He's twin, as it were. He's got nothing to fear. So, so with that, I want you to come to John chapter 1. Just as quickly, please. John chapter 1. And as we go there, you know, faith. Faith is not just about confronting Esau, is it? It, it takes great boldness, doesn't it? And courage to take on the Esau's. But faith is more than that. Faith is acknowledging 
that God is with us in those encounters. And that's what Jacob is learning here. It's not just taking on the Esau's, but it's this, this recognition that God is always with him. Well, in John chapter 1, then verse 49, just very briefly now, these ideas that we've just looked at in Genesis chapter 28 are now seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 49 then, Nathanael answered and said unto Jesus, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou, thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, just, just, just reflect for a moment those words. Suddenly, the altar stone has been replaced by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Abrahamic altar stone has been replaced by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Abrahamic altar stone was the place that Abraham foresaw the Redeemer. Can you see that? And suddenly now the altar stone becomes the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you see that? The place where Abraham foresaw Christ now becomes Christ. And that altar stone was there in Bethel, the house of God. And now that stone becomes a living stone, a breathing stone. And he's not going to build the house of God. He's going to build the living house of God. Can you see that? Suddenly a stone is living and breathing and talking. And he's moving. And he's on the move to gather up stones. Can you see that? This is the, the vision here. And so in other words, Jacob saw the Lord Jesus Christ. This, 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 this wonderful thing. But, but it was a blueprint of something that was going to come. But, but you know what, brothers and sisters? I think Genesis chapter 28 is so important. I believe it's one of the great theophanies of God. If I were to ask you what are the theophanies of God, you'd say, ah, Moses in the mount. And then some of you would say, yes, yes, Elijah also in the mount where the revelation of God was revealed. His glory was revealed to these two men. Now, what was the context of Moses and Elijah? They fled there, as it were. They needed God to reveal his glory to them because they felt that God had broken his relationship with them and God's people. Elijah felt that he completely failed. How did Jacob get to Bethel? The fear of the face of Esau. Can you see that? Surely Yahweh is here. He didn't know Yahweh was there. And God reveals his glory like he did with Elijah and Moses to demonstrate that he was with him. Can you see that? It's one of the, the great theophanies. So we're just going to finish now. Just come back very briefly to uh, chapter 28. So Genesis chapter 28. And let's just slow it down now. Jacob had been promised a land and a seed. And the seed to come was infinitely superior to him. Infinitely. He's the great patriarch, the recipient of the promises. He's just seen in vision, angels ascending and, and descending upon him. But the seed to come was so much better than him. 
he had deceived his father, yet he was also a patriarch. And, and for me, the most moving thing of this chapter is found here in verse 13. So, so he's told here that he was going to have a land and the seed. And then go down to verse 18. After receiving these words, what does Jacob do? He rises up early in the morning. He took the stone that he had put for his pillows and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon it. This was the altar stone that he knew that Abraham had seen the coming Messiah. And he'd seen angels ascend and descend upon him. And I want you, just, to, just for a moment, as we finish our thoughts now, I want you now, Jacob, this great patriarch, and, and he picks up this stone, this altar stone, and he raises it, and he pours oil upon it. Because in that act, this tremendous act of faith, he recognizes that this altar stone spoke of the singular stone, the singular seed to come. And he raises that stone up and he anoints it with fresh oil because he knew that one day the Lord God would raise up a man strong for himself and he would be anointed above his brethren. Do you see that? And what a moment of So, brothers and sisters, as we bring our thoughts to a conclusion here, as Jacob erects the first stone in Bethel, the cornerstone, the foundation stone, anticipating a house to be built, I want you now to imagine that stone that solitary stone glistening in the sunshine, wet with oil. Can you see it? At Bethel. And the Lord God takes up that moment in Isaiah and says, I have laid a foundation stone, a sure stone, a precious cornerstone in Zion. That was the scene in Bethel. And the Lord Jesus Christ was raised up as the solitary cornerstone, the foundation stone, a sure stone that's been tested. And there it has stood for 2,000 years, yearning companions. And through the annals of time, chisels have been blowing hard at stones of all sizes and shapes. And every Esau that we face, brother and sisters, it's another blow of the chisel. And we're being shaped and we're being molded in the quarries of our lives. And one day, those stones will belong to the chief cornerstone. That's the picture of Bethel. And so, brothers and sisters, I leave this question with you. Are your challenges molding you and shaping you to be fit to join that cornerstone in Zion? Or are you still a rough stone 
ready to be shaped.